Language Talk is a series of podcasts of interest to world language educators across the nation seeking information about issues relevant to teaching and learning of world languages. Each month, we'll be talking to educators, researchers, or advocates for world language learning. Language Talk is a partnership between the Kentucky World Language Association Board and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky, designed to showcase the importance of global citizenship. Welcome to Language Talk KWA. This is your host, Laura Roche Youngworth, and today's topic is communities. Joining me is our wonderful producer, Jean Marie Rouillet Willoughby. Hello, Jean Marie. Hi, Laura. How are you doing? Not bad. How about you? I'm good, 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 good. Well, as world language educators, we are given guidance for what we do and how we do it through the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages, or ACTFL. One of the most fundamental structures that's provided to us as educators are the five goals, or the five C's. And these goals provide a framework, framework not just for our units, but for our entire programs and how we think about them. And whether you are elementary, middle, high school, or college, such as yourself, they really should structure everything we do and decide. So with that, I really want us to look at that today, and we're going to focus on one of them, as I said earlier, communities. But if you haven't already, listeners, thought of the five C's, take a moment, and can you recall them all? And I always forget one. I always have to go through my checklist, and I get stuck around connections and uh, comparisons. I always forget one of those two. But if you did your mental checklist, did you mention in your head communication, cultures, connections, comparisons, and communities? And, Jean Marie, whether it's right or wrong, for a long time in my career, I kind of rank ordered them. I know the visual is always, you know, a circle where they're all feeding each other or a puzzle and so on, but I rank ordered them. I I mean, are you the same on that? Sure. Okay, thank you for not leaving me hanging. (laughs) And, of course, communications was always the most important because that's what you want for your kids, Right. right? And for me, with that, cultures was just as important. Agreed. Thank you. I'm excited. Okay, we're on the same page here. Because we know there's a lot of discussions about authentic resources and the role of culture and so on, how that gets um, shared with students and how students understand it. But so I'm going to give a little example. So for me, if I'm doing communication, we're doing a unit and we have a goal at the end of the unit, um, something to do with foods, okay, whatever the task or goal is. For me, the way I would introduce culture is through the communication. So if we're learning colors, we never, ever, ever, and I want to reiterate, whoever, learned colors for color's sake. We always learn colors to use it in the real world. And with that, we would learn culture through that. So it was always a challenge. How can my students overtly or, you know, subconsciously uh, learn about culture? So I might do an activity where we're going to go to an open-air market We're going to go shopping for fruit, and you're kind of picky about which fruit you want in your fruit salad. Here's some, let's look at newspaper ads first to get ideas, and then let's go to the fresh open-air markets. And they would have to go up and say, I would like a banana. No, the yellow banana. So there was always context for the color and the cultures being learned through that. Well, the fact that there's more than one kind of banana is a revelation to many people. True, (laughs) true. Well, and when you do activities like that, and we now get into comparison, and they think about their own culture and which fruits are available at the open-air market, which aren't, are there ones they've never seen, and so on. Just like if you go to Myers, 
I love to go to the section of produce and I'll walk down that and I'm like, what the heck here? I mean, there are things I've never seen before in my life. So we would do comparisons through that activity and the culture. And of course, comparison always comes out with language. You know, the students are quick to point out, you know, I don't know Russian, but in French, banan, hey, that's like English. Yes, it is. So we would make comparisons. Connections for me was always a wonderful way to get the school seeing that French was valuable that what I was teaching also brought in what they were teaching. So even if we're doing the little open air market in one day lesson, we could bring in economics, we could bring in math because they had their euro, they had a shopping list, they had a budget, they had to figure out which fruit do I want in my salad, how much am I going to buy of each and so on. So you can bring in connections with other content areas that way. But the one that was always the hardest for me was communities. And if you teach a language that is more prevalent in your own community, I'm going to say you probably have a little bit of an easier job. If you teach a language such as yourself as Russian or myself as French, it's hard to really find, um, I don't want to say legit, but ways that aren't forced on the kids, that natural integration and usage of the language in the community. So that was always the one I kind of would be like at the end of a unit, oh yeah, communities. What can we do to bring this out? And, you know, I admit there were hokey events. We Christmas caroled. Why? Why? Nobody cared at, you know, the old folk home that we were singing Rudolph in French. It hadn't, you know, but it, it was the only thing I could come up with at that point in my career. And then as I evolved, communities became to mean something a little bit different, and I looked for deeper, more meaningful ways. So today's topic is on communities. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, this is an interesting question for all of us who teach languages, because we obviously want to get students, in the case of the university, off the campus and into the communities that exist. Uh, one of the things we do is we go to the grocery stores, which are run by Russian speakers. There are often restaurants, things like that. But Lexington, of course, has more resources than a lot of small towns. Right. So the end result is, what do we do? Well, one thing you can do is use the technology that's at your disposal to create a community with other students studying the language and with people studying abroad, if you have access to that, um, or who would live abroad and who speak the language natively. Um, but I agree that this requires a lot more thought and very often resources mm -hmm. uh, that you may not have access to and yet is key to student motivation. Connecting them to groups of people who speak the language makes them understand, obviously, all the other C's, but also provides them with an impetus to why we are studying languages. That's so a good point. We really have point. two sides to our field, right? There is the analytic cultural analysis of literature and cultural products, film, and all of those things, which are very important, but it's a very practical skill that we teach. Right. And you don't get better if you don't talk to people. And the other challenge in bringing languages out into the communities, um, our learners into the communities with their language, is age appropriateness. Of course. So, it, you know, elementary teachers, bless their hearts. That's a really hard thing to do. And um, at just when I came down to the middle school level, it became even harder. You know, how am I going to do this with my middle school students? And so I did look at opportunities, like you mentioned, that were, you know, maybe having the, uh, we adopted schools in West Africa and so on, et 
experiences you know, along that line. But um, joining us today are two guests from Kentucky Colleges. And we have Dr. Laura Hunt, Associate Profes Professor of Spanish and Chair of the World Languages Department at Georgetown College. Hello, Laura. Hi, Laura. <laughs> and we have Dr. Ruth Brown, Lecturer in Hispanic Studies at the University of Kentucky. Hello, Ruth. Hello. <laughs> okay, so we're hearing voice differences. That's good. Um, <laughs> thank you both. It is spring break. Is it both for you, spring break? Yes. Yes. Thank you for being here, <laughs> Angie Marie, on your spring break. We greatly appreciate it. But we did want to talk about communities, and, you know, if something pops into, into your head, just feel free to, you know, go with it. But we do have some questions we want to hear uh, your opinions on. But first, can we hear a little bit about e each of you? So, Laura, can you give us a little bit of your background so we get a feel for who you are? Sure, absolutely. So I um, went to undergraduate. Um, college in South Carolina, and then I came to Kentucky and did my graduate work at the University of Kentucky, so it's nice to be back on campus. It feels a little bit like coming home. Yeah. Um, and uh, my undergraduate research was, or undergraduate work, was in Spanish, but also environmental studies, which sort of led to my own area of research, which is the study of the representation of nature and the environment in Latin American literature, in particular, hmm. um, literature of the 20th century the Spanish-American novel or jungle novel um, especially. Um, but currently I teach at Georgetown College, which is a teaching college, which um, our focus is less on faculty research and more on what we do in the classroom, which um, is the right place for me to be. Mm -hmm. And so I love teaching, I love teaching Spanish. Uh, and then a, a large part of my job is also um, to manage the World Language Department I'm also uh, now the faculty director for study abroad at Georgetown College, so I'm wearing a lot of hats, yes, but a, a lot of uh, wonderful hats. So Okay, thank you. And Ruth, what's your background? Um, I'm originally from West Virginia, but I came to Kentucky to go to Berea College. And um, at Berea, I had a lot of opportunities to do service and to work and travel abroad. Most of my Spanish studies I did abroad, and a lot of them doing volunteer work. Um, and that really led me in the direction that I have gotten to now, which was to do my master's here at UK and then walk away <laughs> and work in the community doing social services and interpreting uh, with the Latinx community for about seven years. And when I came back to get my PhD, I did it because I wanted to teach and right. I really wanted to find ways to help students learn the language and learn culture in a way that had been so informative to me, which was by doing and finding personal connections. Wow, both of you have very unique uh, lenses yeah. by which you're approaching your craft, which is very nice. Um, so let's start with just a general question. What are the advantages of providing outside opportunities for language use for students, just in general? Well, I think you mentioned the number one, um, and I think that comes up in the research as well, and that's just motivation. Um, as Jean Marie said, you know, if a student can see personal connection and find an experience in which their ability to use the language and to put what they've learned about culture to work, um, it just changes their outlook and their motivation in class and, and even for grammar and writing. <laughs> it kind of flows through all the different um, abilities that they're using the language for. Absolutely, I would agree. Um, and I would say that it, it lets them see a way to apply what they're learning and it motivates them, as Ruth says, to learn more about that topic. So. For instance, in Latino civic culture, when they're studying the struggles of the Latino community in our education system, 
they can they can go out and see that firsthand in the community, and then they can come back and do more research on the same topic. And suddenly, it, it is has a much more real world application for them what they're learning in the classroom. And that's real important what y'all are saying because many of our students, unfortunately, and I'm not slamming other content areas, but it's probably going to sound like I am, so I am. Um, <laughs> A lot of the things they learn in school don't apply to the real world. So if they're sitting in math class learning algebraic equations, they're like, yeah, okay, I'm not going to be an engineer. They don't see relevance. And they're not given the opportunity to use that in real world. They're not realizing if they have a checkbook, they're going to use this. If they're trying to figure out carpet for their bedroom, they're going to use this and so on. Where world language, it's very, it goes hand in hand. So it's easier for us to motivate our students to love and see value in something if we incorporate these opportunities and so on. So it's, I like what you all are saying. Um, is there any research that you can think about that would either tie into motivation or tie into why we would provide these opportunities for students? Um, well, there is a lot of research available um, through the AACU um, and other programs that basically say that this kind of learning has the highest impact of almost any kind of learning. Um, so there is a large body of research. That's good. That's and good. a lot of the research that I found where service learning in particular intersects with world languages, it focuses primarily on the benefits of service learning, which are pretty well established and recognized in a lot of fields. Um, and the, the, the two biggest in that area are citizenship and civic engagement. And I think that's a great example of how doing this kind of teaching and learning in our classrooms and world language really connects us to so many other fields. It's very interdisciplinary. I mean, those are those are skills and abilities and competencies that apply to almost any field and are being pushed in almost every field at this point as well. Yes. Um, and so just the, the pedagogy of service learning being that students are aware of studying, thinking about, reflecting upon, and then acting in their immediate world um, is just a really great outcome that we see in both service learning research and also in the application of service learning to world languages as well. Um, and the thing that I thought was really interesting when I was looking through the research is that, and I see this in my service learning experiences, Laura, I don't know if you have, is that the competencies that this sort of activity helps with are not primarily linguistic. Though linguistic is a positive outcome, the competencies are more about translingualism and transculturalism. This idea that when you're a Spanish speaker, even though we have, you know, so many opportunities to use the language here in Kentucky, the chances you're going to go out and use it 100% of the time are they're minimal, you know? It's always going to be in this bilingual context in which you're, you're negotiating language and when do I speak Spanish and when don't I and whose Spanish am I speaking? And that's something that's really enlightening to students to realize that they're doing this not because they're going to walk out and get a job speaking Spanish 100% of the time, that their job is going to depend on their ability to, to fluently function 100% in Spanish. Really what it's going to depend on is their ability to move between the languages efficiently and correctly, accurately. Absolutely, and get a taste for the wide variety of communities that there are, you know, right in their own backyards. You know, my students are in somewhat small Georgetown, and yet the opportunities there for interacting with the local Latino community are huge and widely varied. I currently have a couple of students um, 
getting internship credit to go tutor students in ESL nice. in the local schools and their own experiences are so different from one another. You know, one is tutoring a, a student that, that arrived to the U.S. three months ago and speaks almost entirely Spanish and then others are speaking very little Spanish at all. So as Ruth says, um, that, that spectrum is broad and and it is so much more than just linguistic what they're learning. Really, they're just learning about these other communities. Mm -hmm. so, and I think oh, in languages, we see this uh, often, that our students are either minoring in a language with a major in something else, or double majoring, precisely because of these important connections mm -hmm. that they make to other fields, be they anthropology, medicine, social work, and the like. Uh, these are skills that give them a professional leg up but also a cultural awareness that helps in their profession more broadly, uh, even if they don't intend to speak their language every day. And as a, as a teacher, it's a great opportunity to bring in those other fields. So Laura, you were talking about talking about economics mm -hmm. and math in a, a market activity. Well, when I teach our Hispanic Kentucky class, and honestly, it's a foreigner level class, top students, amazing group, but we talk about uh, income distribution, we talk about urban development, we talk about economics, politics. Um, we don't talk about language a lot, to be honest. We use the language to talk about these things, and it's hard for them at first. How am I going to talk about urban development in Spanish? Mm -hmm. But that's the skill that they need, really, to go out and use the language later on. Absolutely. So I'm going to go back to something you said at the beginning, because it was really intriguing. Um, service learning. I never thought about there's a structure to that. Yes. So you mentioned, and correct me if I'm wrong, you said studying, reflecting, and acting. Right. So there, it's, it's um, I'm probably going to miss some steps, mm -hmm. <laughs> but the difference between service learning and volunteering, for instance, is volunteering, you just go out and you do work, but you don't take the time necessarily to understand that there's a need for the work that you're doing. Someone's told you there's a need, you go and you do it, and then you leave. Um, service learning, the difference is that you, in some way, take the time to establish that there's a need for what you're doing. So you have to understand the community that you're working with and establish that what you're doing is actually helpful. You do the work, and then as you're doing the work, you're reflecting upon it. And so the reflection is that big piece of service learning that differentiates it, differentiates it from just volunteerism or service. Um, and it's the reflection and also the, um, the revision and, and the constantly thinking about the value you're providing and your work um, and the connection to the academic content of the course. Wow, that's mm -hmm. kind of a game changer for it's, teachers. It's not easy, I don't think. I think service mm -hmm. learning classes are a lot of work because you're really doing two things. You're running your class and then you're running your placements. And you have to find a way that they overlap and match and connect to each other. Everything has to have meaning, so all of your you know, your reflections are good for reflecting, but they also have to tie in to the academic content. Now, you can do community engagement without all of those steps. Right. You can have your students go out and do a, go visit a store, right? And, right? and maybe you connect that back to the class, and that's community engagement. Or you can have students um, in some of our upper division interpretation translation classes, they'll do a project, right? And they'll contact a community organization and ask for, you know, something they need translated. And that's a project-based service that they're providing. Um, and that's fine. Those are great opportunities as well. But if you're talking service learning, it's a lot more than just sending students into the community and hoping for the best. Absolutely. <laughs> and I would add that the, that the trick, as Ruth alludes to, is that you have to, you have these learning outcomes for your course and you're, it is sometimes difficult to match 
the community partner and their needs mm -hmm. with the needs of the course. And so you have to be very flexible. And the expectations of the students. Exactly, <laughs> right. And so it is true that mm -hmm. it is, I, many, many faculty will jump into service learning and then they may not do it again because it does take a, a lot of work on the part of the faculty member to ensure that those learning outcomes are being met as well as the needs of that community partner without compromising on either end. Um, and that does take a great deal of planning and flexibility, and sometimes they simply don't match. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it doesn't work out. You can spend months prepping a class, and, and some placements just won't work out. Right. But having worked in on the service side of this for a while in the Lexington community and having that perspective of the community partner, I appreciate how important it is to not just send your students out, oh, there's an event, go help. Well, that may not be what the event people need, and it may not be what your students are capable of doing. And it's really important to establish those relationships and maintain them and to check in with them and to say to the community partner, I have students, they speak some Spanish, I'd love for them to get involved. How can we help you? Right. What are the needs that you have? And then you get that list and you say, well, we can't do this. <laughs> My students can't translate. Okay, what else can we do? And if there's nothing on the list, then go back. Right. Well, maybe we can do a kid's booth at the fair and provide some, you know, an activity that isn't already there. And finding that, taking the time to make that match so that what your students are doing is A, something they're capable of doing, which right. is why a lot of my students tutor, because they can tutor, you know? Yeah. Um, something they're capable of doing, but then is also meeting a need and not putting a burden on the community partner. Okay, so asking you all to kind of brainstorm out loud, um, how do you step that down K through five? Sure. Because the language skills aren't gonna be there. You've got young kids, so is it where a teacher needs to just start building the thought of that in a kid, or do you seek that? You know what I mean? It, huh. You've got an age I, to think about absolutely, here. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that that's one reason that at UK our service learning classes are 400 level class, <laughs> because yeah. it's oh, so much of the, it's the that we're asking of students. But I think that if you take pieces of those mm -hmm. and you back it down, for instance, I know that a lot of K-5 um, teachers take their students to Living Arts and Science Center for Day of the Dead. Fantastic opportunity for them to get culture and community. No, they're not providing direct service. They're participating in the activities. But there's some tenets of service learning and, and responsible, conscientious community participation that you can still instill. Mm -hmm. right? So why are we doing this? Not just why are we doing Day of the Dead, but why are we doing it in Lexington? And then yeah. what do we get out of it when we come back? You know, having that pre and that post, some reflections, some activities to prep students and then to follow up with them afterward to make it more meaningful. So they're not just showing up at a building mm -hmm. and making a, a calavera, you know, and then they're going back. You know, why does it matter in Lexington? That makes that community connection um, for even a K-5, I think. Mm -hmm. Even just bringing different communities together um, can be a moment mm -hmm. for service learning. But as Ruth said, the key is to do something on the front end, and obviously at the elementary school level that would be different than at the college level. But some kind of study of cultural differences or cultural sensitivity or simply cultural competence, um, and then getting, getting mixing with other communities and trying to learn about one another would be a way to do that. Um, a lot of elementary schools have sort of cultural fairs or world mm -hmm. fairs, and I could see bringing multiple schools and communities together as a way to, um, to effectively do what might be considered service learning. So if you had a strong Latino community at a certain school, you could um, 
you could try to join partners with another school with a, a different cultural group and, um, and see what you can learn from one another. This is really making me think, and of course I'm thinking, wow, I'm going to have extra work. Um, <laughs> the, what I'm hearing you all say really aligns to global competency and Asia society and their four-part structure. I mean, it's, it's basically dead on what you're saying. And I know in Kentucky, world language educators are very familiar with that because it was in our program review. That no longer exists. But um, with that, it almost seems like there needs to be an articulated process. So if you are in a county, whether it's big or small, if you can work K through 12 or K through 16 would be even better, of course. If you can work K through 12 and articulate, okay, by the end of elementary, we really want students to have achieved this, this step Absolutely. of it. And like you were kind of saying, appreciation of other cultures, understanding of other cultures. So like, okay, step one. It's down by elementary. It would be really beautiful, and the, the students would, by the end of their senior year, mm -hmm. there's like this articulated, intentional approach. So that by the time they're seniors and they actually go into the community to host the kids' table at the festival, mm -hmm. they have a really clear idea of why they're doing yeah. it. And so in, our, in one class, maybe we do our evaluation in, in one semester, but if you were to articulate it over the course of right. a student's progression through K-12, you could work that up, you know? And I think sometimes it's as simple as looking at the resources you have. If you have Latino students in your school, maybe their parents can be resources to you. Absolutely. Maybe they can come in and not just talk about their home country, but talk about their experience as immigrants and, and new Americans um, to help students to, even if they can't get out of the classroom, to see a connection that's more meaningful than just this idea that, that language happens abroad, right. right? That it's right here. And so they can talk about their traditions and what they're bringing, but also asking them some sort of question and having the students reflect on what it means for this person to live in the same community, to have their children go to the same school as the children in your class might be beneficial. One thing you can do is uh, use census data very effectively. It's easy to search down to the block level mm -hmm. of your community hmm. what proportions of speakers of different languages live there, what proportion of people of different ethnicities live there, what ages are they. Um, now, that doesn't tell you who those people are, but it tells you that this community is more diverse than you might expect. Mm -hmm. And it's all available online, public access. Hmm. Uh, so it requires a little bit of digging, right. but I'm doing a project right now, this is why I know this, with my students on folklore in Lexington, and I'm having them do the demographic data of their region of Lexington before they walk out the door to say, what am I going to do my project on? Mm -hmm. You don't know who's here yet. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Um, now, going into, it was mentioned, cultural fairs. There's not a school around that doesn't do cultural fairs. Right. <laughs> but usually, and I hadn't thought of this till now, we just put on a cultural fair mm -hmm. and the French club's gonna have a booth Yay. and the Spanish club's <laughs> gonna have a booth. And it's probably it's, gonna be like a Don Quixote statue. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> right. and, and a you know, pinata. Yeah. stereotypes are gonna be on the table because yeah. that's what people know. But yeah. we've never been given guiding questions or things to think about to make it a more enriching experience. Mm -hmm. But here's where you can reach out to another school or even mm -hmm. the college level mm -hmm. and ask for them to send students to run these booths. And you may even get 
students from a particular culture, which makes it a much more authentic experience. Yeah, don't forget the Clearinghouse has all of our contacts listed for mm -hmm. schools across yeah. Yeah. Kentucky. And they may not be students that are identified through the world language necessarily, but through international study. International Student Services right. would be mm -hmm. a great place to find students from all over the world at almost every Kentucky college. And what we found in Scott County, uh, we participated in a, a fair at uh, Garth Elementary. and. This was as much of a benefit for the parents in the community as it was for the children. I mean, some of these parents had never tried or encountered different foods, different cultures. So this becomes, you know, an educational outreach moment, even when you didn't anticipate that it would be. You thought it was just for the elementary school students. And it can also be an empowering moment for the people who are sharing their culture. You know, I think I, I have the impression that in the high schools and um, middle schools, a lot of... Latinx students aren't necessarily in the Spanish classes. Some of them are, of course, and a lot of our Spanish teachers, for instance, can ID, you know, the, the Latinx members of their community through their courses. But a lot of times they don't take the language because they're already, you know, heritage speakers and they don't see the need for it. But that's a great opportunity for um, this, the world language teachers to reach out and to help try to identify these students in the school who are probably underserved and probably underconnected and whose parents are probably extra detached <laughs> from school life and, and try to, you know, empower them to come in and be leaders and to be spokespersons and to give them you know space in the school to speak um, and that also helps the Spanish teacher or the or the French teacher because then you have all of a sudden opportunities to practice the language yourself to you know continue your own professional development right there in your community um, yeah I think that and here comes the service learning moment yeah both for the student who might be sharing about their mm -hmm. culture and for everyone else who's uh, experiencing it. Mm -hmm. So if you can tie that to your academic goals, then you've really created a learning model that is incredibly effective and impactful. And meaningful. And I think a lot of the research, what it shows is this idea that um, what's important about the target target language usage in community activities such as those that we're talking about is that it's it's rich and meaningful mm -hmm. right it's really that it's not so much about the language it's not about using the colors for the colors it's about right. using the colors because you're trying to tell someone you like their scarf right. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know and you really do and there's this personal feeling about it and I love that color red how do level. I do that and you know, I always joke with my students that until you're abroad and you have to ask for toilet paper in a pinch you don't really <laughs> learn what it's like to speak right. fluently you know um, but but those are opportunities that you can, maybe in smaller contexts than if you were abroad, but even just the littlest opportunities that someone has that aha moment that, oh, I did that right and I got the information yeah. I needed. You know, that's meaningful and that's really where that language um, incentive comes from. And, and it makes the students accountable for their own learning <laughs> because suddenly, you know, they have to go use what they are supposed to have learned. Mm -hmm out in the real world and, and, and it is on them to perform. And I see that this greatly improves their, their work in the classroom because suddenly they realize, oh my goodness, you know, I'm gonna need this skill in the real world and, and they wanna know more and they wanna do better. And I would imagine that you could embed and intertwine a lot of what you're doing in the classroom anyway at the K-12 level with an activity like this, mm -hmm. sort of as a culminating activity, right, so right. that you're not necessarily memorizing a dialogue, but you're studying, you know, pieces of vocabulary, pieces of grammar that you're then, as an instructor, going to kind of weave into the encounter, right? Well, well, Things that they're going to have to be able to accomplish. Let's get into that then. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about what are examples you all would imagine that K through 12 or college, you know, if you want to separate the two, um, what have you seen? What would work? 
for service learning or community well, engagement activities either. in general? Okay. Either. Um, so the ones that I see that work the best are when the students um, interact with people of their own age or kids that they can see as their brothers and sisters. Okay. So I have students that do a lot of tutoring in Lexington. Again, it's something they can manage, even though the Common Core math was for a loop because they didn't learn it. <laughs> it also is useful because people at almost any skill level yeah, can do it. Exactly. So when you're not sure of a student's skill level, this is mm -hmm. a great way to employee service learning. And I think that when they have that opportunity to interact with either someone of their age or someone who's younger, they there's a little less pressure on them than if they have to walk up to an adult in a right. store <laughs> and ask okay. them something in the language. That's mm -hmm. very intimidating. Um, and so sort of those sort of, when you can find opportunities that are a little more organic and a little more of what they're kind of used to doing anyway. I mean, they study, they help their friends, they've done tutoring before. That's why that one works so well, I think. Um, and they don't have to be perfect, you know? There's that sense of the filters down because you know that the kid may correct you. And a lot of my students say, but the kid keeps talking to me in English. And I'm like, well, tell the kid to teach you Spanish. Give the kid, you know, the power to teach you. And then it usually helps because the student, the, the, the youth, the, the kid that they're working with, you know, wants to use something and feel like they're good at something. And so they kind of take on that role and try to try to teach. So. Um, so I think opportunities where they can interact with people at their age or younger are really positive in that way for lowering okay. the filter and making it more accessible and doable. Um, and any, anything where the need is so great, they see that they are needed mm -hmm. and there's no one around to help in the way that they can help with the skill that they have is useful. So for example, again, in education in Scott County, we've had students go and they'll interpret on the fly for a parent information session where the principal needs to get a message out to the parents and the parents may not speak English. And my students, for better or for worse, may be the only resource right. to help um, with that communication. And suddenly they realize, I can do this mm -hmm. and I need to do this mm -hmm. because no one else can. Mm -hmm. And so this, is, this has been very successful for us. So these family literacy nights with the schools, um, the parent information sessions, even parent-teacher conferences where the, the child speaks wonderful English, but the parent may not speak English, and they need that assistance, so we'll have a student help. Um, and the worst thing you can do is rely on the child to translate for the right. parents. That right. is too of much course. pressure on that Absolutely. child. Absolutely, yes. And that, now that kind of setup does take a little bit more training, mm -hmm. and you need to know the skill level of your student. Um, but it is certainly rewarding and successful. Um, we've also had our students work with um, the uh, GED, program in Scott County, um, particularly in Spanish, and uh, that's been helpful, but also a learning experience for us all because suddenly my students have to try to teach math, advanced math concepts mm -hmm. that they may not understand in English right. in their mm -hmm. second language. Um, but again, we have a new application of the language to a different end, mm -hmm. which is really uh, valuable for them. Um, for high school students, I think that in, in a lot of parts of the states, there are uh, events, in Spanish at least, but I think in other languages as well throughout the states regularly that are cultural festivals for the community. Um, and I think that this is an opportunity, it takes a little like work on the teacher's part, but to find something that the students can do. And I think every event I've been to, they are always lacking in children's activities. And what a great way to interact by doing a craft mm -hmm. and the family's there and the kids there you can learn the vocabulary you need to do the craft 
Right. You can use your Spanish. You're talking to people. Everyone's having a nice time. It's low. It's low stress for the student. It's something they can manage, and it's actually a service because I I don't know a festival I've been to where there've been enough kids activities, Absolutely. especially um, when it's a family event. You need something for your kids to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, again, that takes a little legwork on the teacher's part. It takes some contacting the event people, reserving a space, making sure there's a table, organizing your students to actually do the craft, not just sending them and say, how can I help? But providing a service, even at this one-off event, that's a service you can do as a class. And I think middle schoolers and high schoolers could do that with the right guidance and supervision. And I know that's a challenge. I mean, I know we're all, especially at K-12, overworked and lots of lots to do and lots to keep up with but to make it meaningful and to make it you know helpful that's one way they could do it I'm almost saying and I hadn't thought of this till you all were, were talking um, communities there's almost a big C and a little C mm -hmm. with communities yeah and to be truthful I was thinking about the little C things that align to this is what we're doing this unit mm -hmm. so how can I bring this unit and what we're learning outside the classroom walls mm -hmm. and you all have taken it to a big C yeah. <laughs> which is really interesting because you know I always um, and I think Jean Marie you probably were in the same boat a lot of the lesser taught languages you have a lot of preps it is the game mm -hmm. uh, Spanish teachers sometimes get it a little bit easier because there's more Spanish teachers so you take the higher level I'll take lower you know mm -hmm. um, and when you have four preps it's tough yeah it's Absolutely. really tough so I always like to see things simplified where I know I'm, I'm reaching a goal systematic and um, I'm saying that for me I would have chosen a big goal like culture night at the elementaries in a county I was in and by senior year, that's our goal. But every unit we're doing was prepping the kids. It was like a little taste, a little step mm -hmm. of getting them ready for that. So I'm trying to think this through, how a teacher, like you said, we're all busy, mm -hmm. can really do right by the big C of communities through little Cs. Yeah, I think, I think your idea of articulation is really important and working. I, th I think this is... Uh, something that affects a lot of professors who work in service learning is we end up a little isolated because not everyone wants to do it, at least a lot of, a lot of programs. Um, and the articulation among the, within the program is really important, mm -hmm. especially in the way that you're talking about it, that, right. that you guys as a group, as, as a faculty of your language or languages, and you could do it at a, a world language department level as well, have a goal that you're working toward and then working doing pieces of it, different people can participate in creating different pieces of right. that stepping blocks to get you to that goal. Um, I was just thinking about the, the showcase. And I go and I, um, I often get to uh, judge the presentational speeches. They're always about culture in other places and communities in other places. Oh, and not here. No, never about here. Interesting. Yeah, and so... Maybe that's an option for students to research and look for and go out and explore or make connections on the Internet about resources and communities that are right here in Kentucky. So to explain to listeners what's being referred to, KWLA has a showcase that happens in the spring. UK hosts it. And the students do some prep work prior where they have to do a research project and, and do a big presentation where they then have interpersonal interaction with the judge and so on. They also do a pre-assessment in order to come, a writing, uh, to make sure the proficiency level on the writing is at a certain level. 
And that is beautiful what you're saying. It's something the state organization puts on. So if there's other states listening, it's a really good opportunity, not just for the students, but for you to maybe incorporate service learning. I, sir, I would think KWLA can have a service learning component. Or at least community engagement. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. That's going to rock some worlds. Um, <laughs> now, <laughs> but it's really valuable. Why are you mm-hmm. studying a world language? Mm-hmm. You know, you might right. be studying because you love to read literature what? or listen to music, but usually the students are going to say, So the question becomes, world. what are examples of musical groups in Kentucky that use your target language? What are examples of companies in Kentucky that, or your state, that require their employees or work internationally? Um, these are projects we have our students do in like business classes and upper mm-hmm. division Spanish classes sometimes when they have this focus. But I mean, that'd be a great topic for a oh, showcase. Love it. love it, love it. And that's one little step, mm-hmm. getting the kids yeah. enculturated almost, indoctrinated towards this concept of service learning. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> well, it, you know, for it's our job. We're <laughs> developing a kid. And it's not just about the language. We're trying to make them be the best citizen. And you all mentioned mm-hmm. that earlier as one of the goals is citizenship. And so part of that is caring and understanding about others. And resiliency. And I think mm-hmm. that's a major factor in learning a second language, but also in being a global citizen is when you run into someone in the world that is not like you, right. how do you respond to it? And the only way to really get good at that is to do it a lot. Um, and that can happen a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to happen by going abroad. Mm-hmm. I love it. So are there any resources or anything you would suggest listeners to take a peek at to mm-hmm. learn more about what's been discussed? Um, well, if you're really interested in doing service learning uh, as a you know pedagogical approach that integrates it into your classroom, uh, Campus Compact is a great resource, and Impact, um, which is a national resource for service learning at the high school level. Campus Compact is more university level, but it's a great place to find information on the process of incorporating service learning. But I wouldn't also get too intimidated by service learning. If you can just do community engagement, yeah, that's it, great too. Um, it can so, be as simple as reaching out and finding someone in the community that has a common interest with you. Mm-hmm. So looking for those community partners, and you can use the local colleges as a resource mm-hmm. for that. At, at many of our colleges, we have an office for civic engagement. Mm-hmm and a person in that office who keeps a running list of potential community partners. Really? And it may be that something could work mm-hmm. at the elementary, middle, or high school level. Um, Other resources might be refugee resettlement programs. In Kentucky, we have Catholic Charities, and they work with folks from all over the world, and they would have some good resources for connecting with the communities that they're resettling. Um, Kentucky Refugee Ministries. Refugee Ministries. Also um, looking to maybe not small towns, but nearby cities that have globalization, global offices. So we have Global Lex. I know Louisville has a very, very vibrant program um, at the city level that works with uh, its, you know, communities, immigrant and diverse communities in Louisville. Um, Those would be resources that would know people and programs and, um, you know, places to get involved and also often host the programs, the the festivals and things. And as a folklorist, I can also put in a plug for the Kentucky Folklife Center down at uh, WKU. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have online access, um, website, contact information, and they work with immigrant groups and uh, native, for lack Mm -hmm. of a better word, Kentuckians all across the state, and they know who's here and who's doing what. 
churches and restaurants as well yep. and stores. You mentioned Russian store owners and, and restaurant owners here in, in central Kentucky. Um, churches can be a great resource, though, in more rural areas. Um, what, else? Yeah. what else can you find people? Well, that, through I, the local library, libraries, right. ESL programs also. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the Carnegie Center here in Lexington. Their most immediate community mm-hmm. in a way that other places might not be. Mm-hmm. One of the things on that, um, you know, for again, for some languages, it's a little less obvious. You, mm-hmm. you have to dig a little bit harder to find. And I encourage everyone, when you're anywhere, anywhere in your community, um, just kind of strike up a conversation and work your language into it. <laughs> and, you know, hey, perchance, do you all make Russian food? Do you all, uh, do you know anybody who speaks French? You'll be amazed mm-hmm. how many people will connect you to others. And any experience is open to your world language. And to, this would be a small C. So any experience that you have in your daily life, you can bring to your students and your students to that experience. So for example, um, I never knew the Biltmore was so influenced by the French. And it became a yearly field trip for my students. It was a, like a rite of pilgrimage or passage. Uh, when you hit level three at the high school, or I took my eighth graders in middle school, we'd go to the Biltmore. And you know, when I first presented that to each principals at the schools, they were like, what? You know, are you just wanting to go to the Biltmore? I'm like, no, I don't want to be on a bus for this long with kids. But, you know, I did find out when my husband and I went there that the architecture was influenced by French castles. Ooh, check mark. I did find out that, wow, you have a castle, this rich person who had his whole land supply himself, so farm to table. Well, they do that in Europe. That was a very natural way. So let's go and taste that at this restaurant and experience that. Wow, we found out inside the castle, this guy was someone who traveled the world and um, acquired things. Napoleon's chess set. We need to see that. And, and it became this really rich experience that you wouldn't think about. The gardens are laid out in a French style. So, you know, we would learn things and then we would go see it somewhere in the community and use that as a discussion point. So it can be, you know, something as small as that. But just I, I really encourage teachers to think about communities as a big C and a little C and try to do both. Don't scare away from the big C because um, often we just take kids to the restaurant. We find a place that serves German food and we go eat at the restaurant and we keep on telling our kids, speak in German, you know, and that's the experience for the class. So it's bigger than that. Mm-hmm. So really think that through. And um, if you have questions, can people contact you all? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What Absolutely. would be a good way to reach each of you? Um, certainly you can get me by email at laura underscore hunt at georgetowncollege.edu. And I'd be glad to answer any questions or brainstorm ideas for service learning. Yeah, my email is pretty simple, ruth.brown at uky.edu, and I'd be happy to speak as well. So I appreciate both of you coming on your spring break and sharing with us about communities. It was wonderful and very thought-provoking. So Jean Marie, moving on to polyglotting news. Yep. Do you have anything from the universities that you want to share? Yes, as a matter of fact, um, April 19th through 21st um, is our annual KFLC, Languages, Cultures, and Literatures Conference. Teachers get free registration. This year, as always, we have a full range of panels uh, dedicated to Arabic, Chinese and Japanese, French, German, Spanish, Italian, and Hebrew. 
But of particular interest, I think, this year to teachers is our SLA series, which uh, has panels on Friday and Saturday of the conference, so the 20th and 21st, all day long. It's a great professional development opportunity and free. You can register online. Um, the topics this year are learner variables, motivation, which we were just talking about, and also uh, pedagogy and curricular issues in the classroom. So extremely practical for ideas and methodology. The uh, address is kflcas.uky.edu. All right, from KWLA, our Interim Vice President, Ben McMain, we have some news to share. The KWLA Showcase, which we referenced, is being held Saturday, March 24th. We have over 160 students representing schools from across the Commonwealth who will be in attendance, so we wish everybody best of luck, and Jean-Marie and Lydia, who organized that wonderful event. Uh, KWLA is going to be present this weekend, so the weekend of the 16th, 17th, 18th, at the the Educators Rising Conference at the University of Louisville and we'll have a booth there which is wonderful this is really exciting uh, there's going to be a booth there to offer support to high school students wanting to become world language teachers so if you have not started tapping shoulders of your sophomores don't wait till they're seniors hit your sophomores up and start to tell them how vibrant they are. They have this personality. They're catching on language. You should be a world language teacher someday. And they'll laugh at you, but put that seed in their head and really start coaxing them. And the Educators Rising is um, an initiative that's happening nationally to encourage high schoolers to really think about being in education. So KWA is taking a lead on that, and that is wonderful. Also, don't forget, we do have a conference happening in September. Proposals are open right now. The deadline is May 1st. If you would like to submit a proposal, please go to kwla.org. Uh, on the website under conferences, click 2018 Call for Proposals and submit yours. The conference will be in Lexington at the Griffin Gate Marriott. And finally, don't forget that KWLA is open and wanting to hear your opinions. If you would like to give us an idea, if you'd like to get involved, if you want to help advocate, please email info at kwla.org and let us know. We'll get you involved. This wraps up our podcast on communities. I'd like to thank Laura Hunt, Ruth Brown, and Jean-Marie Rouillet-Willoughby for being our guests today and discussing this wonderful topic with us. Also, the University of Kentucky for providing the technology, location, and broadcasting of our podcast. This is Laura Roche-Youngworth for Language Talk KWA. Happy teaching and au revoir.